like to welcome you all to the Anderson Church. If you um, take your Bibles to and open them to chapter 20, you'll see that it says there in the first verse, when the uproar had ended. When the uproar had ended. So if we just started there, it would be kind of confusing for some of you to know what the uproar really was. So where we find it is in chapter 19, verse 23. So I'll go quite quickly through this material. And the only reason I'm sharing it with you is to show you how Paul's ministry in Ephesus kind of ended up and um, round out what we were doing last week, give you some kind of context for today's sermon. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. So these were skilled craftsmen who made figurines of the goddess Artemis. Called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know how we receive a good income from this business? And you see how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now two minutes would be long enough for me. Imagine shouting that phrase for two hours. That's what we call crowd frenzy. People get wrapped up in this crowd frenzy and it gets out of hand. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. And if there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. 
In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, if you understand the way that Luke is putting this material together, you have to ask yourself, why did he include and give this quite long narrative on the riot in Ephesus? One simple answer would be, well, Luke is recording everything that happened to Paul, but that's not the case. When you study this carefully, you find that there's vast amounts of material, many miracles, for example, and, and significant events in the life of Paul that are not recorded by Luke at all. What he's trying to do with this passage and others is to show that Christianity, Christianity is legitimate. He's trying to convince Theophilus. If you read the beginning of, of um, Luke and Acts, and he's trying to show that Christianity is credible in the Roman Empire. That's one of the main reasons why he includes this material and excludes lots of other material. It's very clear when you get to hear the city clerk, he's putting things into context. These men haven't done anything wrong. Now, if Paul would have gone out there, he probably would have lost his life. So God held him back from that. That's good, because he wanted to run out there, and that wouldn't have been a wise thing to do. And it show, Luke is showing that the gospel is spreading. God's plan is being worked out. The gospel is going throughout the kingdom. Also, go back to verse 21, which may also help put things a little bit into context of chapter 19. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. So that's where he's aiming to go, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I've been there, I must visit where? Rome. Rome is the final destination. Rome is the main place that Paul wants to go. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, it really doesn't tell you here, but if we put his writings together in the New Testament, we know that he was taking a collection for the poor to Jerusalem. Now that there's been this riot and, and plans have to change, Paul has to go from plan A to plan B. I was kind of humorously thinking to myself a few minutes ago, does Anderson have a plan B this morning? Do any of you know what I'm thinking of? Carla, you should be able to figure it out. I came in the office this morning and said, Carla, are you ready to preach today? I may not make it. So plan A is that Pastor Mason preaches, right? Plan B is that someone else preaches. Does Anderson have a plan B? What's he talking about? Well, whether Paul liked it or not, he has a plan B. Go back to chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. I want to emphasize right at the beginning here that Paul is the great encourager. He has a very clear understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. What makes Jesus Christ 
such good news for anybody. He's very clear about that. Jesus lived the perfect life, died on the cross for the human race, and God fully accepted that sacrifice on behalf of humanity. He's very clear on that. He explains it in different ways, in, by the way of justification or reconciliation. He has different, different ways of explaining it, but, but on this good news of Jesus Christ, he's very clear. And one of the first things we should understand from understanding the gospel is that people should be greatly encouraged. You don't have to be carrying guilt. You don't have to be worrying about whether you're worthy or not. Isn't that good news? Isn't that encouraging? The focus is not on you and your performance. The focus has never been on you and your performance. It's always been on Jesus. What about his performance? Could he live the perfect life knowing that Satan was snapping at his heels constantly? Knowing that the weight of hum the sins of humanity would come come down to crush Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we know when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the books that introduce us to Jesus and, the, and, and uh, his life and death. We know that he rose from the dead. God did fully accept him. So therefore, the focus is never on sinful humanity and judgment. It's always on Jesus Christ. Lay the focus on him, and all of us should be encouraged. And that's not, that's not uh, encouraging us to slack off. That should be the greatest incentive to holiness. See, we kind of get things upside down. We put the focus on us, and then we put the focus on our performance, and really what you end up in with is Catholic theology. I've said to some of our church members here, they probably didn't like me when I said this. I said, you're more Catholic than Adventist than you're thinking. And they know it took them months and months to understand what I was talking about. And I think eventually some of them started to, to understand. Catholic theology puts the focus on the individual and their performance. It can never give them the assurance of salvation, what, what was mentioned uh, at 9.30 this morning in our Bible study. Um, the whole tenor of this quarter's lessons is that you can't witness, you can't do true evangelism unless you have the assurance of your salvation. So we spent a long time in my class on that this morning. Not because there's not other important things to discuss, but because this is so basic to everything we say and do. Uh, the way we interact with one another, the way we think of one another the way we treat one another. The New Testament teaches that we are a kingdom of priests. You all have a priestly vocation. Do you understand that? Do we understand that with one another? The focus is not on a pastor in the New Testament. It's not on a priest, unless that priest is Jesus in the New Testament. No, we are all in Christ. We are a kingdom of of priests. We all have that priestly vocation. And I don't know, you'd, you'd have to convince me that I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that there's much more equality in the New Testament than there is in our church structure and the way we do things as Seventh-day Adventists. We tend to put 
Um, people on boxes, they are the general conference president, they are the union division president, they are the conference president, they are the pastor or whatever. And I'm really tired of this because it is so unbiblical. You don't find anywhere in the New Testament because you're an apostle, you can lord it over the people. Where do you find that? Yes, some people think Paul is kind of bossy, but I think that that is a, that is a false uh, picture of the Apostle Paul. I actually think he was a very tender, encouraging type of person, but he certainly knew he was in a warfare. And there's not many of us that have ever caused a riot, right? Uh, because we're taking someone's business away. So whether it was with the Jews, then Paul is the lawbreaker. Then the, Paul is the one minimizing the law. Paul is the one that's minimizing the role of Israel. So he's the enemy. When you're with the non-Jewish person, he's taking away our business. So yes, he, is, he does become the enemy, and yet he's the one person, not the only person, but a main person that is bringing the encouraging message of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a strange thing when we beat up on the messenger, isn't it? Especially when the message is such good news. Anyway, as we look at these verses here, we find ourselves in verse 5. These men went on ahead. I just went on ahead myself, so I wouldn't have to read their names to you. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. So Troas is going to be very... Last week it was Ephesus, this week it's Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, Karen, Karen titled the sermon this morning. Because I was just drained of energy, and I couldn't, my brain wasn't working, and I gave her this drab title, and she turned it into a sermon to die for. Don't you like that? Kind of catchy. A sermon to die for. So this is the main part of our message this morning, verse 7 to verse, through verse 12. On the first day of the week, let's stop right there. Adventists love texts like this. And there are probably eight of them in the New Testament which are used to support Sunday worship. And this is really hard for me to say this because I have such respect for certain Bible scholars out there. One of them, who's a truly outstanding scholar, really slips up here and says this is the first unambiguous place in the New Testament for first day Sunday worship. When I read that, I thought, oh boy. It really shows you how prejudiced we are, even when we're a fine Bible scholar. Think of it. If this is the first clear statement in the New Testament on Sunday worship, and I'll, and I'll continue a little bit reading so you can understand what's going on. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. So what's that? Is that having a meal together like a potluck? Or is that a communion service? Well, I think many think it's a communion service. So let's assume 
that it was a communion service that they had there. And they had it on what day? The seventh day? The first day. A communion service. Wow, something new is going on here. This is a new order in the early Christian church. This is why we keep Sunday as a sacred day, right? Oh, you don't sound very sure. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Sunday is what we would call the first day of the week. So if you look at a calendar, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, unless you're in Europe and they have different calendars over there, uh, you'll see that the seventh day falls on a Saturday. The first day falls on the Sunday. The first day in Scripture is always a work day, or usually a work day. So think of the first day as a work day, when you can actually go out and uh, till the soil and do your business, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> there are even some that try and take first day worship in the Old Testament and make that into, into a worship day. And maybe there were, was worship in the Old Testament on other days, I'm sure there was, on other days besides the seventh-day Sabbath. But think of the implications if we say and if we conclude that this first-day Sunday worship is now being instituted uh, fairly early on in the first century. <clears throat> we should understand enough that something like circumcision was such a hot issue so someone like Paul comes along and says, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. The Jews went ballistic when they heard stuff like that, right? You, most of you know that. But now we are talking of touching the Ten Commandments. So we can crank it up to a much higher level. The law of Almighty God, the one he wrote with his finger, and if we understand the, the um, importance of the law of God in the Old and the New Testament, then it's highly unlikely, if we're really thinking things through, that we can believe that first-day worship was being instituted here. Now, we could get around it. I'm even thinking some things as I speak here. We could get around it and say, well, this is... A Gentile situation. So for Jews, seventh-day worship. For Gentiles, first-day worship. What do you think about that? Is that, a, is that a solution or does it cause more problems for us? What do you think? More problems. Because then you have a divided church. And if there's one thing that we should have seen in the book of Acts is that God used many different means, often supernatural, speaking in tongues and other supernatural events to show that God's Spirit had fallen, for example, on, on the Jews, Acts 2, on the Gentiles, Acts 8 and 10 and other places, and also to show that if God had accepted them as seen, it filled them with his spirit as seen through these supernatural acts, then Jews and Gentiles have to accept one another. That's a really big issue. 
in the whole of the New Testament. So if you go into Galatians and, and Romans and books like that, you'll see how important this is. So if we had a system with something different for the Jews, something different for the Gentiles, that would create some problems. And I think for me, unless God, if God institutes something, it seems logical to me that he's the only one that can uninstitute. Is that a good word? Is that a proper word? He's the only one that can nullify something, right? Isn't that common sense? So when you have really fine preachers who you respect, and you might hear 90, 99% of their sermons and think that they're just truly gifted of God, and they, they are great preachers in their own way, and then suddenly you hear them say only nine were carried over. Huh? It just doesn't make sense. People that know nothing about the Bible would find such a statement very, very strange. And the only one that's not carried over, the only one that's minimized, the only one that's nullified and changed is the seventh-day Sabbath. And then when we look at the Ten Commandments and look at the seventh-day Sabbath, we see it's the longest of the ten. And we also see it as the one that binds both together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So we're, we're remembering our obligations to God as the Creator God and our obligations to one another. So the reality is, as I see it, is the, is the perpetuity. Perpetuity. How do you say that? The consistency of the law of God. See, for God to change his law, he'd have to change his character. That doesn't make sense. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Some of you, some of you wonder why Seventh-day Adventist. I remember when I was in Sacramento, we had church members that really got hot under the collar about this. Well, what's so different about Seventh-day Adventist than, than other churches? Why should I go to a Seventh-day Adventist church and not go to a Lutheran, a Methodist, or whatever? Well, here's one of the answers right here. Seventh-day Adventists believe in this consistency, in the importance of the Ten Commandments. And we believe it enough to, to practice it, or at least attempt to practice it. When God says, remember, we try to remember. When God tells us to keep the Sabbath day, we try and keep the Sabbath day in a way that honors Him. So we don't have any, we don't have, here have any institution of a new day of worship. We have to go back uh, later in history to find that. And we start seeing, um, some of you will say to Constantine, no, way before Constantine. We had, um, in certain parts of the empire, we started seeing Sabbath and Sunday being kept side by side, probably by A.D. 150. So middle second century, we started to see both days being kept. And you can go to certain places like Ethiopia and see this long history of seventh-day Sabbath keeping and also a history of Sunday keeping as, as well. Of course, when we go to a book like the book of Daniel, which we're not going to do today, but those of you that know that book, then we see powers trying to change God's times and laws. 
So we believe that it was prophesied that someone would try and lead the people astray on the law of God. And we, we are living amongst one of the greatest lies of human history. Uh, this lie about Sunday worship and also the immortality of the soul. They are big deals that we need to understand. So on the first day of the week, what we would call Sunday, we came together to break bread, which is probably a communion service. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So notice that he spoke, he kept speaking, he kept talking. That is the key to this passage. You may not understand why at this point, but I think you will. There were many lamps in the upstairs room, probably oil lamps, where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, some of you are going to be really feeling guilty at this point because you're the kind of person who sleeps when the pastor preaches. And I don't want to add to your guilt. We have enough false guilt that I don't need to add any. I did read a little illustration, a little story where the author was saying, we were in class one day at school and this young man fell asleep. So everyone went really quiet. The teacher and the students were all on the same wavelength. They went really quiet and at the end of the lesson, they all left the room really, really quietly. And so he, he kept on sleeping there. And, um, and then they clued in the next class and the new teacher to do the same, come in quietly, don't wake him up. And halfway through the, the new class, he woke up. And he never freaked out or anything like that. He was just thoroughly, thoroughly embarrassed. And he just kind of looked around him and snuck out. And everyone had a good, good, good laugh. Um, it's not unusual to preach, to uh, sleep rather, during the sermon, especially if it's hot with these lamps that they had in this room. And this young man, Eutychus, when we say young man, he could be anything from 20 to 40 years of age. We really don't know. He's by the window. He's trying to get some air. Not like he's doing anything wrong. Maybe he knew he was nodding off and he got near the window so he wouldn't do that. But anyway, he falls into this deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. Ooh, that hurts. And was picked up dead. Now, the way that this is worded, you could conclude, well, maybe he really wasn't dead. Maybe they just thought he was dead. But remember who's writing. This is a physician that's writing. He's very specific about his terminology, Luke is. So I believe that this man indeed was dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Yeah, don't we find prophets in the Old Testament that did something similar to this? We don't fully understand why they did it that way any more than we understand why Paul did it this way. But hey, let's go with the result. And what's the result? Paul put his arms around him and says, Don't be alarmed, he's alive. So life came back into this young man. Now here's where it gets really interesting. 
To raise someone from the dead is front page headlines, right? I mean, you don't see that very often. Jesus did it. Here we see Paul doing it. We might find other people in the Bible that did it, but it isn't like an everyday occurrence. And you know, as far as this passage is concerned, it's not a big deal. And it really, if you think about it, it really clues you into where Luke is coming from. Where is the emphasis here? Is it on the miracle or is it on the word of God? We read, then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, this is one long sermon. And I don't think it really was one long sermon. I think there must have been a lot of dialogue. But here's the important point this morning. In an age when we want to put so much emphasis on the miraculous, and I don't think there's anyone more than me that would love to just pull my handkerchief out of my pocket and pass it around and everyone gets healed. Wow. Think what that would be like. Cut out all the hospital visits. No one in rehab. No family mourning. It would be, it would be mind-boggling, right? And Paul did that. Sweatbands, aprons, we talked about that last week. But you know in Scripture, the emphasis is never on the miraculous. The miraculous is important because the miraculous can help us to have faith in Jesus. Jesus said, if you can't take these words of mine, look at the miracles. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. So, they, so miracles are important, they have their place, but they are not the most important. What is the most important? That people understand truth. That's the most important. Why did he spend hour after hour until daybreak preaching to them? Because he's going. He may never see them again. He may never visit Troas again. And he has to cram in as much teaching. Now, that alone, I mean, people have such short attention spans nowadays. You're lucky if you, if you can get 15 minutes in with them, right? Because of, that's because of all of the entertainment that we have, TVs, video games, and all of this sort of thing. So people's attention span is much less than it used to be. But obviously, he's got a lot of teaching here. He knows that there's always the chance that false teachers will come in when he's left. And so he's hoping, well, maybe, maybe someone will pick up this point and someone will pick up that point. And then collectively together, they can retain the truth of what I'm sharing with them. So Paul, it's kind of like Paul's looking at his watch and he's saying, okay, it's taken 15 minutes for this young man to fall down from the third floor to die, for me to, through God, to bring life to his body. Let's get back upstairs and get into the teaching again. That's the impression I get from this passage here. So he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, that's where the emphasis is. Verse um, 7, he spoke to the people, and a number of places here um, in verse 7 and other places, the emphasis on talking, on speaking, preaching, teaching, that's where the emphasis is. We take these things very, very lightly in our church. Um, somebody asked me this morning, 
well, do we have, um, do we have uh, a statement of our beliefs? Somebody's asking for a statement of our beliefs. So a few minutes later, I saw her, and she had a little booklet in her hand on a statement of our beliefs. We just take it for granted. We don't think anything of it. The reality is, the majority of people out there are totally clueless about truth. And there's many in the Seventh-day Adventist church who don't understand the main points as far as truth is concerned. Anyway, this passage winds up in verse 12. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. And I wonder what they did when, when, when they went home with him that night. And they said, Eutychus, you naughty boy, you really shouldn't sleep when the preacher's preaching. And hey, you missed all this truth. So now we're going to fill you in and we're going to teach you what you missed. I don't know about you, but I, I find this writer Luke very interesting. Because yes, he focuses on Peter and yes, he focuses on Paul, but you have to see beyond those people. And you have to see God at work. And God's purpose is being worked out. Paul never dreamed in his wildest dreams how he would get to Rome, right? And hopefully we will get to that in the near future. But God always had a plan. God always had a purpose for Paul and for the advancement of the gospel. He still has a plan. He still has a purpose. He is the same God. Does God have a plan for the Anderson Church? The more that you and I tune into God and know God on a personal basis, maybe this is God calling right here, I don't know. But the more we do that and get on His, when the New Testament says, walk in step with the Spirit. There were many in the New Testament that were not doing that. It would cause division in the church. It gave the leadership uh, headaches, struggles that were unnecessary. So the sooner that you and I get on the same wavelength with the Spirit, the sooner that we can spend time together in prayer. We need to do more of that here at Anderson. Intercede with God. We have souls that we need to pray for, right? I won't mention any names, but some of you know who I'm talking about, people I'm talking about, who who can have perhaps a head full of truth, but they're still not converted. They're still not saved. They're still not in Christ. We need to intercede for those people. We need to break Allow God to break this strangled hole that Satan has on some of these situations. We're surrounded by, by people who are addicted to all sorts of things. And I don't believe they can really gain the victory unless you and I wrestle with God as Jacob did and really uh, allow God to set them, set them free. So be encouraged that God is in control. God has plans and purposes as he had for Paul, so he has for us. This gospel of the kingdom will not end in a whimper. It will end in a blaze of glory. That's why Adventists use terminology uh, like Revelation 18, the angel coming uh, with power and great glory. When we talk of revival, there's been a great emphasis on revival and reformation coming from uh, the general conference uh, level of the church. Don't know if it's filtering down, but each one of us should have, um, especially as we go through the book of Acts, should be encouraged to pray for revival and reformation 
and really have church members who are pumped up, who are passionate for their faith, and empty pews will become filled pews. And one service will become two and three services. And when God's people move out into the community and shake the bushes, God will work. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for Jesus. And though we've not focused specifically on Jesus this morning, we can certainly see him working through Paul, through Eutychus, through the people. And even when there's a riot somehow, some way, you can use these things for your honor and for your glory. I pray, Lord, that everyone here this morning will be encouraged. When we look within, we get discouraged, Lord. So, so break that addiction. Um, just stop us doing that and help us to lay the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one altogether lovely, the lily of the valley, the bride, the morning star. Help us to fall in love with him over and over and over again. May our love become deeper, sweeter as we get to know him and indeed through him to get to know you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.